second podcast this week. Just have a lot of things on my mind, a lot of things to say. I wrote a new post on my site. It's just a fictional story. We'll get into that in a bit. Uh, but first, uh, just a funny thing. I, I'm going to be 51 next week, and we're celebrating tomorrow night, having the party. Hopefully, I can get this edited and posted uh, before the party, because I know it's Saturday. I'm not going to be in the mood to edit. And it just, I just started thinking about how fast the year went by, because it just seems like a week ago, we're getting ready for my 50th birthday, which was kind of a big deal, big production, 50th birthday. We talked about it last year on the pod. That just seems extremely recent. It doesn't seem like a full year has passed. You know, I've thought about this before, and I'm sure a lot of people have, that how fast time appears to move is a function of how old you are, because when you're three, a year is a third of your life. When you're 10, a year is a 10th of your life. And when you're 50, a year is a 50th of your life, and you're not used to it being that small of a fraction of your life. So relative to your accumulated memory, a year is actually not that big. So it starts moving faster and faster and faster. At least that's my experience, and that's my theory to explain it. Uh, but I was joking with, with Sasha. I actually have a, this is on video because we got into an argument. We get into these arguments about stuff. She gets annoyed. No, it's the base case. It's time travel. It's not time travel because it's your normal one. The base case is time travel. No, it's not. Yes, it is. I was saying that we're traveling through time at the rate of one second per second. So she was talking about time travel and said, well, you know, we're actually time traveling right now. We're time traveling to the future at the rate of one second per second. You know, you, you drive your car at like 60 miles an hour. You can walk at three miles an hour or whatever. That's how much distance you're covering over time. That's your, your speed through space. But you also have a velocity through time. And it's at one second per second is the pace that we're on. But sometimes I feel like I'm traveling faster than that and I got here really quick. But the thing is everybody else is right there with me. You know, everyone else is aging too. It's not like I took a speed of light trip to other side of the galaxy and came back and everyone was old and I was only a year older. You, you guys, you saw Interstellar when uh, Matthew McConaughey comes back and his daughter is an old lady, an old woman. Um, funny, I tried to watch Interstellar with Sasha few months ago and she just thought it was so boring she, she couldn't get into it i'm sentimental about that movie because matthew mcconaughey had a daughter who was nine and sasha was nine at the time that i wanted her to watch it but i guess it was just too bleak you know that end of the world type of stuff wasn't that exciting for her but then i traumatized her as i said last week with six cents and she's just now getting over it it's been a very interesting process it actually affected her way more than i thought i was kind of joking about it but she was really affected in a serious way but she's doing well she's uh, really interesting. It's just been really good conversations we've had about processing certain feelings. It's uh, probably should take my own advice, actually, that I was giving her. And maybe we'll get into that also. All right, before we get into the stuff I'm working on, and I've got a bunch of it, I want to just talk about this whole Elon Musk thing again, because I talked about it like, okay, he's buying Twitter and people are hypocritically freaking out and they don't really seem to want free speech. They want censorship. They're not like, oh, yeah. You're going to censor us. Uh-oh, we censored you. We shadow banned you. By the way, I think I'm shadow banned again. I just checked. So that's annoying. It's annoying not to be able to reach the people that are following you that want to read your stuff. But anyway, they're not like, oh, he's going to shadow ban us. That's not their, their worry. As I said last time, their worry is we're not going to be able to control the narrative as we've controlled it the last few years. And it's a full-on panic. Somebody at... NBC, Comcast, some engineer, there's an email shown and he was discussing with whoever asked him to discuss this or look into this. 
how Twitter could be removed from the internet, isolated from the internet. So that's how desperate they are not to let dissenting views air and be challenged on their views. And then to top it off, and this is actually funny, I mean, it's serious, but it's, it's also funny. Biden administration has appointed, I think she's a crazy person, but this woman, Nina Jankowitz, to be the, to be the director of the Disinformation Governance Board, you know, a ministry of truth, so to speak. And this is a woman, and, and Drew Holden, you can follow him at Drew Holden 360, tweeted out, and I'll actually put this in the notes, tweeted out some of her former tweets, and she was citing the Steele dossier and Chris Steele, who, that was, that was the beginning of the whole Russiagate fraud. Uh, she, of course, tweeting out the uh, Hunter Biden story as being fake. Basically, she was a font of misinformation herself, echoing the worst propaganda from the last several years. So they've created this disinformation governance board, a ministry of truth, so to speak, and they've appointed a person to it. Obviously, they would appoint a person like this who is a purveyor of the worst abuses of disinformation from the largest sources. You know, there may be some random crank out there duping people with false information. And of course, that exists in a free market of ideas. There's some bad ideas. There's some lies. There's some misinformation. There's probably foreign countries infiltrating and, and making false claims, too. And that stuff is all operating, you know, in the, in the background and it's having some small effect. But things like Russiagate, which are on every news channel for three straight years, where people still to this day think Trump colluded with Russia to win the 2016 election. I mean, that is not random cranks queuing on people going on some conspiracy theory. This is a giant conspiracy lie, conspiracy theory lie that was believed and fomented to the highest, at the highest levels and undermined the sitting president. Now, think what you want about Trump, but I think making up total lies about his involvement with Russia to undermine his legitimacy as having been elected is beyond the pale of a democracy. And there's some Clinton, uh, you should follow Ted Bell's account, but he's documenting how some of the Clinton operatives are, they've been indicted for this. This is, you know, there, this isn't just like some bullshit where they're claiming the walls are closing in and he's going to go to jail. There are people being indicted right now for that Russian, Russiagate disinformation campaign. And a person who is passing along that verifiably false information is now being appointed as the director of the new disinformation governance board. I mean, that's how absurd it was. We always knew the Hunter Biden laptop was probably true. And then finally, some of the mainstream outlets like the Washington Post and the New York Times admitted it was true. And you have a person who was claiming it was false now being appointed to be in charge of the disinformation governance board. That's where we're at. And that is not surprising because it's not about disinformation as everybody really knows. It's just about power, narrative control. They don't care whether there's disinformation. They don't care about disinformation. They want you to have the information that will get you to act in the way that they want you to act. They want you to have the beliefs that help their agenda. That's all they care about. They want to have the beliefs that will keep them. They want the public to believe things such that by believing those things, it will keep them in power. That's all they care about. And everybody knows this. I mean, the defenses of this censorship and the worries about free speech, I mean, they're so disingenuous. It's really, it's really, really crazy. It's crazier than I thought it was. I mean, these people are crazier than I even thought they were. I thought, okay, 
they want to win, so they're going to cheat a bit and shadow ban people and kick Trump off Twitter and tilt the playing field. Okay, they're playing dirty. They don't, it's pretty authoritarian. That's what I thought. You know, I thought they don't, they have a, as I said in my article when I talked about it in last week's pod, I, I feel like they have fragile belief systems and they don't want to be challenged and they're nervous about it and this is causing them to act badly. But I did not understand the extent to which the disease had progressed. I really, I really didn't understand it. I didn't realize that people who call themselves liberals, which I would call myself in the past, 10 years ago, I'd say, yeah, I'm a liberal. I don't, how could you call yourself a liberal if you're not for free speech? Free speech, the First Amendment, you're not for the First Amendment, you're not for free speech. I mean, this is really through the looking glass, right? To me, it used to be the radical right wanted to shut down what words you could say and curses and rap albums and regulating that stuff. And now it's people who identify as liberals who are against free speech. Free speech is fascist. I mean, this is Orwellian, Orwellian. freedom is slavery, war is peace. Speaking of war, I mean, they keep escalating the Ukraine situation. And, and I actually think that part of it is just the same old story. You know, why were we in Afghanistan 17 years? Well, because the weapons makers make a lot of money when we keep, when we occupy a place or we're in a war. And Raytheon and all the military contractors, they are powerful. They, they own Congress people the same way the banks do and the same way the pharmaceutical companies do. So that's sort of like, okay, on one level, okay, they're, they're making money. I mean, but, but, uh, but there's sort of a deeper, kind of scarier level to me, which is that the economy, at least in the first quarter, shrank. It's like minus 0.4% or something like that. First, you have inflation where everything's getting more expensive and then the output is shrinking. It's kind of a stagflation where you have inflation, but no growth. That's a really difficult place for the Fed to be in because if they print money and lower rates, you're going to have runaway inflation. If they tighten, you already have a weak economy that shrank, totally collapsed. And you see the markets going way down on the last couple of weeks. So they're in a really, really bad spot. And I'm going to take this further and say that what I actually think happened is over the last 40, 50 years, since we got off the gold standard, and as we started to deregulate certain industries, Wall Street, I think that basically there's been a lot of looting of the productive capacity of not just the U.S., but all over the world by the elites. They figure out a way to print money, and they position themselves close to the printer, and they profit from it at the expense of everybody else. And if you can look at this, a site called What the Fuck Happened in 1971, and they have all sorts of charts that things changed as soon as we got off the gold centers, the productivity versus compensation for workers, CEO pay versus worker pay, the price of housing versus wages. Every, everything changed when we got off the gold standard, which just meant we could kind of print money willy-nilly and ECB does the same thing and the Bank of Japan does the same thing and China does the same thing. So there's something called the Cantillion effect. And what it means is when you print money, the people closest to the money printer disproportionately benefit and the people farthest from the money printer uh, actually get hurt. It's an upward transfer of wealth from the people farthest from the money printer to the people closest. And Wall Street is closest to the money printer, and then so Wall Street gets this money, and they, they use the money to lobby, so the lobbyists get paid, and the consultants in D.C., and the people that the politicians hire to, from their 
uh, campaign donations. And these people are siphoning off the money of, that basically is really, what is, what is money? What, is, what actually is this money? Where does it come from? Well, there's sort of a collective productive capacity of the entire country and the wealthy for the last 50 years have been pulling it up. And been sort of bouncing around from bubble to crash and re reinflating a new bubble to avoid the crash. So we went from the tech bubble to the housing bubble, and then we bailed out the banks there. And they spent like 800 billion. And I remember when that happened, it was like, this is really dangerous to spend this much money. And a lot of people thought maybe we should just let things collapse. It was just way too much money, too dangerous. And I think, why is that dangerous to spend to print 800 billion dollars and shore up the banks? Why is it so dangerous? Why did they say it was dangerous? Why wouldn't they have done that 20 years before? Every recession, every time, you know, people want, why don't just cut taxes? You can do it anytime, you can just print money. You can make everyone happy and whoever's in power is gonna keep power forever because you can just keep bribing them. Well, there's a reason they didn't do it before because they knew, it's just like a law of physics. This is not, <laughs> you can't suspend the laws of physics. They knew that if you printed money willy nilly, you'd create massive inflation. And so they did this in 2008, the financial crisis. And despite the economy not really growing in real terms, the stock market went bananas, real estate went bananas, assets went bananas. So there was massive asset inflation just from that 800 billion. But over the last couple of years from COVID, I think they printed, I don't know exactly how much, but five times that much, 10 times that much, a lot more. I think something like 40% of the money in existence has been printed in the last couple of years, maybe more, maybe I'm undercounting that. Anyway, there was no way that this wasn't going to have a seismic backlash when the bill came due. And the first thing that happened, which is what happens all the time when they print money, is the very richest people got a lot richer. And all these tech billionaires got a lot richer. You started to have trillion dollar companies. Most of the money during the pandemic, you, know, you might've got 1400 bucks or whatever you got, but most of that was an upward transfer of wealth. So this is the backdrop, and it's not just the U.S., it's around the world. You have basically Social Security, entitlements, pensions. They've got to keep the rates, the interest rates, very low around the world. The U.S. is probably the highest, but they've got to keep the interest rates very low around the world in order to keep the stock market inflated because the stock market only trades relative to the supposedly riskless rate of return. So if you can get 6% from a government bond, stocks have to do pretty damn well to beat that. But if you can get half a percent or 2% or 1% from a 10-year government bond, whatever, 2%, whatever it is, then stocks don't have to do as well to beat it. So the interest rates are so low and have been so low for so long that people, that pension funds and, and other people and other instruments that people are relying on to live out their retirements, they can't just be in bonds. It's not, there's not enough yield. They can't get 2%. It's not enough to live on. So they have to go into stocks. So now the stock market isn't just, oh, well, if it goes down 50%, you know, a bunch of investors lost their shirt, a bunch of Wall Street guys lost their shirt, a bunch of rich people. No, it's going to wipe out people who depend on that money. If the stock market going down is like a national security risk at this point. It used to be you could have a recession, you could have a downturn in the stock market. I don't think we can have a downturn in the stock market because too much is now tied to it because interest rates were so low and everybody had to get into stocks. 
So this is a, this is a massive problem. So they can't let the stock market go down, which is what is happening now. They can't let it go down too much more if they raise rates or you know, stop printing more money. So eventually I think they're gonna have to print this money, but then there's gonna be inflation. Inflation is gonna destroy people just the same as the stock market going down. So there's really no way out. And so you see the rhetoric in Ukraine getting more and more aggressive. Well, guy I follow Macroscope on Twitter, who I recommend, suggested this, that there's a direct correlation between the rhetoric getting more aggressive in Ukraine and the increasing realization that the Fed is totally trapped. And so you basically have 40, 50 years of plunder. The bill is coming due. There's no way they can fix this. The economy is in big, big trouble, and it's going to hurt a lot of people. And they're turning toward what? Censorship, war, escalation of war against the nuclear power. It's very dangerous. They're turning to anything they can to deflect. And then there's another problem is COVID. The lockdowns killed a lot of people. The lack of early treatment killed a lot of people. They destroyed livelihoods. There's I think one in five, I saw an article that said one in five teenagers have, have thought about suicide. The, the pandemic response was such a disaster. Then you have the vaccine. The vaccine, unless you're living under a rock, unless you just don't want to know, the adverse effects are just everywhere. In my timeline, every day, there's some athlete had a heart attack. There's somebody who got the vaccine and now they're disabled. Now they have a problem. Now they have a, had a hundred visits to the doctor. This, this stuff, the data is everywhere. I documented some of it in the podcast a few weeks ago, and it's in the podcast notes on uh, Roger Bike when you get there, that episode. I mean, this is a big problem. You have these vaccine companies, and the vaccine, the miracle vaccine, it may offer some protection for the short term, but the fact that people have had four and five doses in 16, 18 months, I mean, come on, this is not a good vaccine. It doesn't stop the spread. In fact, the vaccinated are getting it more and spreading it more than the unvaccinated point. I have data on that, it's all linked. And this is a, a total failure, and yet they got people religiously taking this thing, and every shot, every extra shot they get probably has more of a chance of an adverse effect or a long-term problem, and it's not stopping the spread, and it's not for a disease that was really a risk to anybody who didn't have either a pre-existing condition or who wasn't old, and there are obviously a few exceptions, and they made it much worse by not offering early treatment. And so this is another bill that's coming due to the establishment, to the narrative and of course they don't want people speaking up i mean i'm saying this stuff when i was working for rotowire i wouldn't have said this i also didn't there wasn't as much information out but it would have been a you know a problem if this was on the rotowire site and more and more people are just like yeah I, this is the fourth dose like this isn't what it was cracked up to be and it obviously doesn't stop the spread this is a big problem uh, and now these these pharmaceutical companies i mean they they, the government bought so many of these doses. They're trying to get people, trying to get kids to take this. Kids have almost no risk of COVID whatsoever, and they're trying to force kids to take this. There's way more risk of an adverse reaction. We don't even know the long-term effects. I've, I documented the whole thing. We don't even know. They're not even using the approved one, the one the FDA approved. They're using the emergency use one, I think, for liability reasons. So this is just such... Even just that alone is such a disaster that if the information comes out, if people like me are not shut down, if people who are much more knowledgeable about this have better credentials than me, have looked into it much deeper than I have, and have much bigger followings than me, if they're not silenced, if people who have a relative or a friend and they know, yeah, that person hasn't been right since they got the booster, and this starts getting out, I mean, this is catastrophic. And then on top of that, the fact that they've completely uh, looted the economy and 
obviously couldn't get it back on track after looting. I mean, you had the Fed insider trading. You have Nancy Pelosi insider trading, making so much money. All the Congress, both sides of the aisle, insider trading, enriching themselves. I mean, it's just this is sort of an end of empire, disaster collapse type of situation. I don't know what that looks like in a modern society. You know, maybe it's people hurt, get hurt really bad, but we muddle through and basic services are still there. And you don't really, you know, if you're reasonably well to do, you don't, you know, it's, you see there's a lot of sad and ugly things around, but there is also a downside and I don't want to predict that because I don't know. And, you know, just we'll cross that bridge if we get there. But my thesis is that they know everything is unraveling. It's a total disaster for them. And so now they are escalating. They're escalating against Russia. They're escalating the censorship campaign. I don't know how far they would take it. I mean, at a certain point where some of these people would be facing pitchforks, where some of these people would certainly be, they would certainly be fired from their jobs and, and hated by society. Would they be prosecuted? I don't know. I don't, you know, the prosecute, to prosecute somebody, need a prosecutor. But the backlash is so enormous that they are desperately trying to hold things back. They're trying to, they want you to have a digital ID. They want you to have a health pass. They want to make sure that you are not able to communicate, that you are not able to, to get justice for this because the justice, the desire for justice is going to be so overwhelming. So they need to disempower the people quickly because they need to disempower them before there's a chance for the backlash. And that's part of the reason they're, they're really resisting this information coming out. So that's, that's what I think is going on. But, but what really is, is amazing to me, and I don't see people really responding to my Twitter feed anymore. Uh, maybe they just realize I don't work for RotoWire, so I'm not as, uh, I don't have to be as restrained and diplomatic, or maybe they don't care anymore. They're just leaving me alone. Or maybe they're sort of ashamed because they know, I mean, a lot of these people are smart people. People are good at fantasy sports. It takes some intelligence to be good at fantasy sports. They must know that being against free speech, I'm just mystified. I understand because I laid it out last week about the fixation of belief and how people are very attached to their worldviews not being unraveled. And they'll do some incredible mental gymnastics not to face a contrary view. But come on, if you're a smart person, and you see what's going on, and you see this total moron of a person that's been appointed as the Ministry of Truth head, this woman who's just insane disinformation font being appointed, how can you in good conscience to have a coherent worldview absorb that? I mean, at some point, don't you have to face the music? Don't you have to just let the cognitive dissonance go and just say, you know what, this hurts. It really hurts to to deal with this and to build up my worldview again from scratch, but come on, I can't play the charade anymore in my heart of hearts. It's too much. It's too much. People are like, oh, it's hate speech. Hate speech is so dangerous. We have to shut it down. Who's to determine what's hate speech? Do you, do you know anything about history where somebody says, what's the hate speech? Somebody says, what, who's the hater? Who's the hateful person? Somebody gets to decide that. That's much more dangerous than the hate speech itself. I mean, free speech is foundational to any kind of society any of us would want to live in. It's foundational. The First Amendment is the first of the Bill of Rights. It's the first one. Without being able to express yourself and for information to be able to go through its, the rigors of the marketplace, there, there is no ability to course correct. There is no ability to know, hey, we're really screwed up. Why don't we do it this way? Again, I understand because I talked about it last week, at least intellectually, at least logically, 
why somebody would do the mental gymnastics and want to protect that, that doubt that they're assuaging with this belief. But man, at a certain point, coherence, having some sort of sense has to trump that if you're an intelligent person. I'm really, it's just disappointing. Even though I understand the mechanism and I outlined it last week, I, I just feel incredibly disappointed uh, in people. I, I'm okay with some people not, you know, going to Twitter and speaking up because people are in different situations professionally and socially and personally. And you don't want to just throw away a career that you enjoy or something just because, you know, oh, great, you, you got the good post on Twitter. But I'm talking about people doing the opposite. People in my mentions being like, get boosted. What the fuck are you doing? Or rooting for more war in Ukraine as if like they even knew, thought about Ukraine for two seconds six months ago. I mean, it's just really unbelievable how disappointing some of the people I see are. And, and, and it's, you know, it's, very, it's a very fine line to say who's sort of malicious and who's just so deluded, so attached to the, I mean, I guess that's all the same thing, right? You're so attached to your belief system and your, your tribe that to let it go is just too difficult. So anyway, that's, that's one thing. Uh, just a couple of interesting things. I'm writing another piece. I'm almost done with it about diet. And Dalton and I did that pretty in-depth health podcast. But uh, I was sitting with my friend, Caroline. My, she's, a, she's a health consultant. And she knows her shit. I mentioned her a couple of times. And we were just talking and about diet. And you know, she's kind of like me. She eats a decent amount of meat and omega-3s and healthy fats and you know, the, the basics that we always talk about. She, she also works with this doctor and they do these genetic, this genetic testing, which I did. I, w- I was type three and that's sort of Mediterranean diet. I thought I might be a carnivore, but I'm actually Mediterranean, which is plenty of meat, fish, you know, nuts, vegetables, whatever, the Mediterranean diet, well-sourced foods. I think that's probably the most common one, but there, there is one type that mostly does well on plant foods that, you know, a lot of root vegetables and they do well on those. And there's another type, you know, Eskimos or whatever that do, that are mostly carnivores and they, you know, there's Eskimos eat like whale blubber. Most of their diet is animal fat. So there are a couple of different types. If the, uh, the type that does better on root vegetables and plants and leafy greens were to eat a lot of saturated fat, they would actually become sick. And you wonder if, you know, a lot of the vegetarian stuff that you see, you know, I think, oh, that's just propaganda. It's World Economic Forum. Well, there is a lot of bullshit, but... There are people I've talked to, and I mentioned this, I think I mentioned this on a pod a while ago, but there's a guy who, I don't see him anymore, but this Nepalese guy who walked his dog in my neighborhood, I, I would chat with him once in a while, and he told me he became a, a vegan, at least vegetarian, I don't know if he's a vegan, maybe he's a vegetarian or vegan, but he'd become a vegetarian or vegan, and he used to eat a lot of meat, and he was into Muay Thai and boxing and stuff, and he said that, that he felt a lot more in his body and a lot healthier. And I listened to him because he wasn't full of shit. He wasn't trying to sell me on it. We were just having a conversation. Uh, and I thought about it and I was like, okay, that's just interesting. I just kind of filed it away. And I think there are people genuinely who have eaten a more plant heavy diet. I'm not talking about seed oils. I'm talking about root vegetables and olive oil. And you know, there's, there's a way to do that well. And they report feeling better. And I was described as, well, they were probably eating total shit before, so they just ate fresher foods and happened to be vegetables. But actually, I think that there's no reason to doubt them. I think some of them feel better. And then there's people, and I follow guys like this on Twitter, Safety and Amos, Bitcoiner is one of them, just eats meat. He only eats meat. And he says he feels like a million bucks, and maybe he's that type that needs to eat meat all the time. 
And then, you know, there's people like me that are sort of in between, although I do eat a lot of meat. Uh, I was talking to Caroline about this, and not only there are different types, but apparently, you know, say, say something like how long you live. Like, I think she said 20% of it's genetic and 80% of it is epigenetic. And epigenetic is what genes are expressed, not just, you know, what your genes are. Your genes turn on and off over the course of your life based on environmental stimuli. So if you're eating a lot of seed oils and smoking cigarettes, you know, certain it's going to have certain epigenetic consequences. And, and obviously, if you eat healthier it's going to, and don't smoke cigarettes, it's going to have different consequences. And, and so she was talking about, you know, the gut biome, all the bacteria in your gut. And she said, you know, why we eat meat is that, you know, we need amino acids from proteins. And there are proteins in vegetarian food, but it's hard to get all the amino acids and to make them bioavailable. And, you know, people say, oh, but look at elephants, look at cows. They're so big and they have muscles like... They, they can just eat grass. I mean, so you, you don't need meat, but cows have four stomachs and the grass ferments in each you know, region of the stomach. And the fermentation creates all kinds of bacteria that then gives them the B12, which is very hard to get from a, a vegetarian diet and the amino acids they need. They, they make the amino acids to build their muscles in a different digestive process than we do. We sacrifice digestion. Our stomachs are smaller than say the stomach of an ape. And we ate meat, we outsourced it to, you know, we outsourced the amino acid creation process to animals like cows. We eat the cow, we have the amino acids that the cow creates for us. And we are able to have, instead of big stomachs, we have big brains. And so evolution in a lot of ways was at least allegedly driven by the fact that we decided to outsource the acquisition of certain nutrients. But you know, those people who eat a lot of root vegetables, uh, they, they need to get their vitamin B12 and their amino acids also. And Caroline was suggesting that they have very different gut biome than you do. You know, they live in a different environment and they eat different foods and there's prebiotics, these starchy vegetables and things, feed bacteria that grow and proliferate good uh, beneficial bacteria. And that bacteria can get you maybe the B12. Maybe that can get, you know, can help you make some of the amino acids. Another topic we were talking about was uh, vitamin C. Animals, a lot of them can make vitamin C. They don't need to eat it, but humans don't make vitamin C. And for that reason, a lot of people who are on, you know, long voyages, transatlantic voyages and eating fish, they died of scurvy. They, they didn't, scurvy is a vitamin C deficiency. And so the British, I believe this is true. I'm going to research this. I'm almost done with the article, but I'll put some links in. They called them limeys. It's like a derogatory word for British person. I think you can still say limeys. That's a that's one of the derogatory words about a uh, ethnicity that you can say. Those limeys, those fucking limeys. The limeys. I think they called them that because they always ate limes. They bring a bunch of limes with them on their long sea voyages because for the vitamin C, so they didn't get scurvy. But then, how do the Eskimos survive? There's not like limes growing in Alaska or northern Canada. How are these guys surviving without vitamin C? And I think Caroline theorized, I don't know, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I think I understood that she was saying that they, they got it from fat. They synthesized the vitamin C somehow from the fat. And that's interesting because then why did the British sailors die when they didn't have enough vitamin C? Why couldn't they synthesize it? Well, maybe their gut biome with the diet that they were eating was insufficient to synthesize the vitamin C from fat. Or maybe they didn't have enough fat or maybe they had the wrong kinds of fat or whatever. Point is that I think it's possible based on your environment to maybe make some of the nutrients that we think are so hard to get. And my theory is that it might be that in modern society with all the shit we've eaten and all the 
electromagnetic energy and the blue light and the not great sleep and the stress and the stimulation we have for modern society, that our biome isn't very good. It's not very good at making these nutrients as, as it would be if some tribe that eats a lot of root vegetables out in the wild and they're in the dirt and they're, they have animals and they, you know, swimming in the, in the lakes, getting this gut biome up to snuff so that it can really be adaptable and make the nutrients you need out of some pretty basic ingredients. We may, we may not have that. And that's why a lot of people bone broth and meat and oysters, and we need these really nutrient dense foods because our biomes aren't healthy enough, at least you know, just eating the standard American diet to create any of that stuff. We're, we're nutrient depleted. We need to get the most nutrient. We, we can't outsource this. And then it got me thinking about vaccines. And it's like, you know, I don't think the MRNA shot, I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of adverse effects. If you're under 50 and you were healthy, you didn't have a pre-existing condition, you know, you'd be like, all right, I'm not going to outsource it to the, to the pharmacy. Now there's a whole other issue of whether the pharmacies are even on the level and, and you know, falsifying data and not reporting all the adverse effects and all the, there's a whole other issue of whether the, you know, the pharmaceutical companies and the FDA are even on the level, but even assuming they're on the level and they're giving you this option and mandating it is just sickening, but assuming, okay, they're making this sort of immune boost, this something for your immune system. And if you're immunocompromised or you're old, or you're diabetic and old, and you're like, okay, I don't trust my immune system to handle this pathogen. I'm going to outsource it to this mRNA product and take my chances. And, and maybe this will help me. But if you have all the goods in your immune system, like you don't need to outsource it. and you get COVID. And then once you've had COVID, especially you're like, well, now I have natural immunity. I really, really don't need to outsource it. Natural immunity is way better than their product. But you might, you know, the, the idea was at least that you could die trying to acquire natural immunity. And you wanted to substitute this product in part for your immune system. And it makes more sense when you're depleted, when you can't do the job on your own. And so, you know, I, I don't know. I think this is all kind of similar kind of going a roundabout way to my final point, which is not all about this, but, but the point is that humans in some ways, I think outsource their nutritional requirements to animals who can convert plants into amino acids and vitamin B12 and a lot of nutrients that very efficiently. And we can just eat the animal rather than have to figure out how to, you know, have these big stomachs like apes or four stomachs like cows or, but I think even among humans, there's different gut biomes that can handle and do more, do more work and others that really just need to get it delivered really efficiently. And I'm probably oversimplifying this, but sort of the bottom line of it is like, there is no diet we can say you have to eat. I, I can tell you what not to do, right? I, it's don't eat seed oils. Just don't eat them unless they're cold pressed in small amounts in rare circumstances, but pretty much avoid seed oils for the most part. Avoid high fructose corn syrup, avoid processed food to the greatest extent practicable. Eat fresh food. Eat food that's well-sourced. Eat meat that's grass-fed. Eat vegetables that are, not, that are organic and not sprayed with pesticides. Basic stuff, right? Don't eat pesticides. Don't eat animals that are feeding on grains instead of grass and, and pump full of antibiotics. I can tell you what not to do, and I think that'll be mostly right, but what you should do is going to be up to you. It's going to be up to you to figure out you know, what you're suited to and... I think, you know, I may have erred in being like, this is the right food, this is what's healthy, instead of being like, well, I could probably, and I don't know if I'll try this, maybe I will, you know, eat a lot of root vegetables and kind of watch blood sugar, but probably that would adapt too. You know, once you start to change your biome, I think a lot of the ill effects that we see of, 
you're eating a lot of root vegetables can spike your blood sugar, but maybe once you have the proper bacteria and the prebiotics that it's feeding them, maybe that wouldn't be a side effect. It may only be a side effect in the current situation. So that was just my takeaway. I'm finishing that one up, but diet is, it's like everything else. I think you can easily say what not to do. You know, you could say, don't be a drug addict, don't kill people. But if you tell somebody, well, what do I do with my life? I can tell you what not to do. I don't know, I can't tell you what to do. You have to figure it out what, based on two things, just like eating, you have to figure out what you like, what, what makes you thrive, and you have to do something that exists in the environment, right? It's, you have to use the foods that exist in the environment and that make you thrive, given your environment, and just same like, you know, what kind of job should I do? Well, you have to get a job that you enjoy, but obviously it has to be a job that exists, that has to be something in your environment. You have to adapt to your environment in a way that works for you. That's it, right? That sounds really um, axiomatic and obvious. Adapt to your environment in a way that works for you. But that's true about diet. It's true about what kind of job you should get. So that's what I'm working on. That's one of them. Another thing, I was working on a story called the Tower of Babel. And you know the story about the Tower of Babel in the Bible where they're building this great tower. It's going to reach to the heavens. And the God of the Old Testament does not like that. So he makes everybody unable to understand each other. He gives them different languages and they scatter and they're unable to complete this tower. And leave aside that you know, some of the teachings of that are, see, they were hubristic. They, you know, they thought they were gods. But even God says, you know, in, the, in, the, in Genesis, he says, you know, if man could communicate with one another in the same language, there's nothing he couldn't do. And that's interesting. And then he decides to scatter them because he doesn't want man, at least that version of God, doesn't want man to be able to accomplish anything. And I was thinking about that in terms of the, what the fuck happened in 1971 when we went off the gold standard. Forget about language, right? Because if somebody invents something in California, it doesn't get to Australia any faster than it gets to Japan. I mean, the language barrier isn't literally the thing. It's not the spoken language that is the problem. We can translate languages it's no big deal that we speak different languages literally is not the problem. And it's also not a problem that there's euros and yen and, you know, different currencies. Obviously it's, it's inconvenient and there's a, a cost to exchanging them, but it's not the problem in my opinion. The problem where the Tower of Babel was built was going off the gold standard because it doesn't matter that there's different currencies. It mattered that they were all grounded in one store of value, which was gold, one non-easily inflatable, very, gold does inflate about 2% a year, but it's very slow. It's very small compared to, you could print 100% of the money like they did in the last couple of years. So it was grounded in something. And as soon as we abandoned that gold standard, now there's no tether to value. So now it's a big race. You see all the best and brightest going to Wall Street for a whole generation uh, where they could have been engineers. They could have been, you know, 1969, we, we land on the moon. And how much improvement have we done in the last 50 years? Almost none. I mean, watch 2001 Space Odyssey. We're traveling through space in that movie. They thought in the 60s that by the time we got to 2001, we'd be you know, doing interstellar space. And we're not even really better than we were in 1969 in space travel. I mean, Elon Musk is doing something. But you know, we have not developed the rate we thought we would. Look at airplanes. We used to have a Concorde that was way faster than the speed of sound. And that's been shut down. And commercial flight is barely better. It's a little safer, but it's barely better than it was in 1965. So if, if you think about building this tower to the heavens, 
uh, or building things that are incredible, we, we stop doing it around the time where we went off the gold standard. And that to me is the Tower of Babel because there is no agreed store of value. So you have people chasing all sorts of scams and perpetrating all sorts of scams on other people because this money, this signal is not very strong. And I was writing about how money is basically a language, right? So if I, it's easy to see how it's a language. If you, if you want to say, I enjoy this podcast, I find value in it and you contribute to it, you, that's the clearest communication to me that you value the podcast. You're giving me something of value that I can use and then communicate value to somebody else. And that is a very powerful language. And we vote with our dollar. You know, if I want a restaurant in my neighborhood to be in business, I buy food there. If I just theoretically in my mind wish it would stay in business, then it goes out of business because I never ate there and people like me didn't eat there. Well, talk is cheap, right? If I, if I communicate value to that restaurant, that value, that restaurant will exist. If I shop locally, those shops will exist. That is a huge language. The whole language of the economy is money. And in order to have a money that works, that the signal is not distorted and we're not buying things. Why are you investing in index funds? Do you really believe in the, in the S and P 500? Do you like those companies? Do you want them to continue doing well? No, you don't give two shits. You do it because dollar's not a good store of value and it's, and there's inflation and you're going to get farther and farther behind. If you don't invest in something, people are investing in baseball cards, NFTs. So to me, that's the tower of Babel. And then once we have a, a hard standard, you have all of the development we had and, you know, going to the moon and creating the highway system and building the car and the airplane and all the great inventions that happened the prior hundred years on the gold standard. So I, I think that, you know, Bitcoin is probably going to be that eventually. And so I was talking about the Tower of Babel. It's funny though, because somebody in the Atlantic scooped me, beat me to it and wrote about the Tower of Babel in the context of how liberals and, and conservatives and just people who don't give a shit about that are, or do not agree on basic facts and how we have this sort of bifurcated reality and it's making things very hard to govern or to do anything. And I thought that was okay. It wasn't bad, but, but I don't think the fundamental problem is that I think that is a symptom of the underlying problem, which is that the only reason reality is so malleable and so subject to, oh, I want to believe this and, and I can fund this indefinitely. I can fund propaganda. I can fund this stuff. I don't really have to pay for it because I can print the money. I think the collapse of sort of a cohesive understanding of facts, a shared understanding of facts is, is because of the money. Uh, and so the original Tower of Babel is, is scattering people with respect to having a way of communicating value that is not distorted by the, I mean, think about distorting it is they can just dilute you by printing and the people printing can basically create any reality they want, any fiction they want, because normally in the marketplace, the things that work get rewarded, right? If you can just subsidize some, I don't know, some wind power or solar panel company or, or wind generation company that is, you know, not even, that's not even generating a significant amount of energy. If you can subsidize that by printing, then the investment in that might be good for a few years just because they're going to keep subsidizing, keep throwing more money at it. If you can bail out Boeing, if you can bail, you know, when they write the 737 MAX, they don't want to upgrade it and then they buy their own stock. All of these things are distorted. They're not actually, when you actually have the market determining what's, what's true and what's valuable, it's a whole different connection to the language, to, to truth. So I think truth has actually been distorted by 
uh, by the money printing and the fact that people can't agree on basic facts is a symptom of that. It's not the cause of that. So I think he's his Tower of Babel uh, is not the real cause. I think the real Tower of Babel is the uh, is the money printing and the uh, when we went off the gold standard and hopefully we'll return to a, a better standard. Um, what else? A couple other things. I, oh, published on chrislist.com, a second self-censored tweets article. And you can read them if, if you want. There's nothing that crazy there. But at the bottom, I have two memes that I never put on Twitter. One was the Pfizer 4, and I did like a term, tournament bracket. I never finished it of, you know, all the top-ranked vaccine shills and COVID hysterics. Um, so that's there. And then the other one I did, you know, the IQ meme that you have, like, the dumb guy, and then you have the midwit, uh, and then you have the smart guy, and the, the dumb guy and the smart guy agree. So they, you know, I, I did one for COVID, and the dumb guy says, if I catch COVID, so be it. And then midwit says, no, you need to triple mask and lock down. And the smart guy says, if I catch COVID, so be it. And it's like an IQ, uh, the x-axis is a bunch of IQ numbers, and so the dumb guy's like 55, and the smart guy's 145, and the, the midwit is 100. But then I, I extended the timeline over to 180, and I put a photo of Nassim Taleb, and he says, no, you need to triple mask and lock down. So Nassim Taleb is like the midwit, even though he's on the far side of the IQ spectrum. I don't know if he's really that smart. He seems pretty smart. But I just think it's funny that he's so smart that he's gone through the other side. Like he's not, he's so smart that he identifies with the midwit. He's gone, he's so contrarian that he's obvious. I don't know. One of the most disappointing people uh, of the pandemic, because I was, I, I just respected the guy's work so much, but it is what it is. You know, it, COVID broke a lot of people. Uh, a couple other things. Oh, I just wrote a story, if you're interested, on chrysalis.com. It was based on a tweet I said. I had a thought I was going to bed one night, and I have a notebook, and I decided to get it and write this down. But it occurred to me that the end game of the PSYOP is when you view freedom itself as a conspiracy theory. Because we're already at the point where free speech is right-wing, and free thought is right-wing, and so finally, freedom itself is going to be a conspiracy theory. And it just gave me the idea for a story about that situation. I called it Endgame. Posted it, if you're curious. It's not very long. So a little bit of fiction. So that's on the site also. Finally, I, I was remiss last week. I missed something that I thought was great. And I'm going to have to read this because I, I missed it. One of the uh, Real Manwood listeners, at WillieBen41, uh, he, 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 apparently he listened to the Salvia Divinorum podcast about the, uh, the drug trips that those people had. And he, uh, he posted this, my friends and I did Salvia a few times in high school, 2002 to 2004. To this day, we laugh about how it was legal. Melting against the wall or chair is a common experience. Turning into inanimate objects is also. I fused to my chair and it levitated. I was transported to a medieval castle garden. I commanded dwarves from my levitated throne. I presided over their whole existence from birth to death in what I was later told was five minutes. I love that shit. That's great. That should have been in the thread. That would have been one of the good ones in the thread. So I appreciate that. I love when people, uh, first of all, as I said, I love drug stories, but I love when people uh, get it, get what, get what the thing is about. So uh, that was good. All right, last thing is, uh, now, you know, this is going on a long time. It's going to be a lot of editing. I'm going to save this one for the next podcast. I'll just mention one thing really quick. So when I was talking to Caroline, the health consultant friend, she mentioned something about GABA, the neurotransmitter, and how, I think it was something to do with blue light and sleep, I'm not sure, or maybe exercise, or 
can't remember what it was, but that when you, you know, GABA basically allows you to relax. And I bought the supplement GABA once like 10, 12 years ago. I took it. I don't remember if it had a huge effect. Obviously it didn't have a big enough effect for me to keep taking it because I kind of forgot about it. It was like 12 years ago. So she was talking about GABA. And then that night I was reading a book by Philip K. Dick Vallis. It's kind of a crazy trippy book. And right then, I was the chapter I was on, he mentions how he had a huge depletion of GABA, which stopped him from relaxing, stopped him from inhibiting his uh, synapses and neurons from firing, and that's why he had this huge hallucination. He had a huge depletion in GABA. Okay, well, that's weird. I'm reading this book from 1982, and they just mentioned GABA a few hours after I just had a conversation about this neurotransmitter for the first time in 12 years. And then the next morning, I follow this account, Wrath of Non, G-N-O-N. And it's one of the best accounts on Twitter if you're into architecture and just traditional, beautiful things that he's always posting. He was talking about soaking brown rice and it sprouts. And I guess sprouted rice is more healthy than normal rice. And it gets rid of some of the phytates and some of the um, anti-nutrients that are in it. And that it's a source of GABA, sprouted brown rice, according to him. So I saw GABA three times within maybe a 16-hour period after not thinking about it for, I don't know, 12 years. And one of the Twitter followers uh, posted that, you know, there's a, there's a, I forget what he said, there's a technical term for it where because you're aware of something, because it's in your mind, you start seeing it. But if you weren't thinking about it, you wouldn't notice the 10 times you saw it in between. And I buy that to an extent. I mean, it's definitely true to an extent that if you're on alert for something, you're going to note when you see it. But GABA is not something that comes up. I mean, I bet none of you, you guys could tweet at me, but I bet none of you in the next week besides this podcast come across a mention of GABA. So I don't know, maybe I should get some GABA. I just started thinking like, why would I see this this many times? So maybe I will. Maybe I will do that experiment. Uh, That's it for this week. I think it's quite a bit. Contributions are always appreciated. Nice ratings and reviews on iTunes are always appreciated. And even more, spreading the word. If you enjoy the podcast, if you think somebody else might be interested in, send it to them. It's free to send. So that's one way you can contribute if uh, you know, you're not feeling that flush right now. Just spread the word. All right, that's it. Till next time.